Today is part two of our current Sunday morning sermon series entitled Revolution, Christ Over Culture. We are studying through the New Testament book of Acts. In case you haven't heard, I've written a study guide that's going to coincide with this 25-week teaching series. I strongly encourage you to stop by the connection booth and pick up one of these study guides. It has a great uh, uh, interest sparker that you can read throughout the week, and it accounts what scripture we're going to study on Sunday and has a wonderful spot for you to take notes. As you can tell, uh, mine is already beginning to get full. So I hope that we use this as a handy tool that will lead us to not merely hear another lesson or another sermon on Sunday, but rather to together study to find out exactly what God's wonderful blueprint is for the church. I believe it is no accident whatsoever that as we find ourselves in the midst of so much confusion within our society and even within our churches with everything that's going on in our day and age, I feel it no accident whatsoever that we are now going back to the book of Acts after literally a year's worth of preparation to lead into this teaching, that we're now going back to the book of Acts and re-examining exactly what God's blueprint for us, his church, is. So let me give you a brief recap. In the introductory lesson to this series, three Sundays ago, we saw the overall revolutionary theme of the book of Acts. And I told you that if there were to be a, a certain text in the book of Acts that would summarize or conceptualize the entirety of what is being presented to us by Luke, the author, in the book of Acts, it's found in Acts chapter 17. If you remember that story, that's after Paul's conversion. It's on his second missionary journey. He comes to the ancient city of Thessalonica, and he begins to preach the gospel there, and he just has an incredible experience. And so the, uh, the Jewish leaders and the political leaders of their day strongly and vehemently opposed the work that Paul and these others were doing. And the the scripture says they made an accusation against those men and women, those brothers and sisters in Christ there in Acts chapter 17, that they were the individuals who had turned the world upside down by preaching that there's another king besides Caesar, a king whose name is Jesus. And if there's any summary, if there's any verse, any, any phrase that would conceptualize the book of Acts and its content and its history, it is that very statement that these are people who turned the world upside down. So that is the overall concept as we zoom out with this drone and we see uh, mass amounts of, of property underneath us. That's the overall concept that we see, this concept of revolution. But as we zoom in a little closer, and last week we went back to the first chapter and we studied the first 11 verses of the book of Acts, we saw that as we zoom in on the inception and we zoom in on the birth of this movement and this revolution that we know of as Christianity, that the, the, uh, uh, the inception of this movement was quite strange. It actually begins with a dilemma. So the leader of this movement, Jesus Christ, had been crucified and this was, this, this was a total blindside for his followers in spite of the fact that repetitiously he had warned them that this was his plan. This was all part of what he came to the earth to do, right? And repetitiously he had warned them, but just like me and just like you, they didn't fully conceive what he was saying, so they basically ignored what he was saying because of their lack of understanding. 
Okay, so, uh, so, so Jesus is crucified. And this was uh, blindsiding because they anticipated Jesus as the Messiah would free them from the oppressing Roman government. But that was not the case. Instead, he dies a Roman crucifixion. And so they are totally blindsided. Jesus is buried in a borrowed tomb. You know the story. Three days later, he rises from the grave. We're going to read uh, Sunday after next at the end of Acts chapter 2 in Peter's uh, Pentecost, his, his discourse at the day of Pentecost where he says that it was impossible that death could conceal or hold Jesus. And I love that verse, and I can't wait to teach it. But Jesus rises from the grave, and then he spends about 40 days with all of these apostles. He's seen of 500 people at one single time. In history, there is no other event that has as much evidence as the resurrection. You may, uh, you may, you may deny that Jesus ever really died, but you cannot deny that he was alive after that cross historically. Now, according to Scripture, we know that he died because he was a substitutionary death for my sin and for your sin. But after this, Jesus walks with the disciples. So imagine in your mind, if you will, They've seen their Lord, their master, the one whom they've followed, their teacher, their rabbi. They've seen him crucified. They knew he died. And now he's walking around with them and he's teaching them things. And he's eating with them and he's fellowshipping with them. And he's chatting with them and he's talking with them. And it's just like so totally surreal. And the book of Acts that accounts this incredible revolution that's known as Christianity, it begins with such an odd, odd opening, such an odd preface. And it begins with Jesus in his resurrected body. He's walking around and he's talking to his disciples and he's teaching them things and he says a couple of comments that are misinterpreted and in chapter 1 verses 9, 10 and 11 he's, he makes a comment about about the times and the seasons of what God is doing within their lives. And, and they answer back. They say, is this the time that you're going to essentially overthrow the Romans and you're going to give authority back to Jerusalem, back to Israel? And Jesus said, hold on a minute. It's none of your business, if I may uh, paraphrase, it's none of your business what time that's actually going to happen. But here is what you need to be concerned with. And I say this to myself and I say this to you, to our church, to my brothers and sisters in Christ, Christ, that we must not be distracted by the, uh, by, by the uh, unimportant events of this world, but we must be reminded of our eternal purpose that we're placed here on this earth with. Jesus said, here's what you need to worry about. You're going to receive power. It's not about the power transitioning from Rome to Israel, but you're going to receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And then check this out. You're going to be witnesses for me in Jerusalem, Judea, and in Samaria, all the way to the uttermost parts of the earth, completely flabbergasted these guys. That is not what they were expecting to hear. And it gets better. As Jesus spits out those last few words, and you're going to be my witnesses from Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and even to the uttermost parts of the earth, all of a sudden he begins to levitate off the ground, and he goes up into the sky, and the clouds open up, and there are two angels dressed in white standing beside the eleven disciples, and Jesus is just disappeared, just taken up into heaven. And they're looking around absolutely with their chins on the ground, just dumbfounded. And the two angels look at them and they say, you men of Galilee, 
Why are you standing here gazing for this same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven will come again? And so this is the inception of this revolution. And I presented the question, the dilemma to you last Sunday. What revolution in history begins with the disappearance of its leader? There are none save this one. But I want to present to you something a little different this morning as we continue through the remainder of Acts chapter 1. I want to present to you that the disappearance of of their leader, the ascension of their leader into heaven on the heels of this revolution, on the, on the beginning of, this, of inciting this revolution, was not the only dilemma that they had to deal with. Today we'll encounter a complication that these uh, gentlemen, that these wonderful folks had to deal with in their preparation for what God was going to do in this season of preparation. We're going to deal with that complication and we're going to see a very impressive reaction from from these early believers, and I'm, as I wrote in the study guide under this week's topic, under lesson two, that first impression that we see of the body of Christ in the book of Acts is absolutely incredible, and it sets the tone for this revolution, although it was based on some rather unfortunate events that we're going to hear about momentarily. Although it was a complicated scenario, their reaction and their response was absolutely incredible. Let me begin to share it with you, Acts chapter 1. 1 verses 12 and 13. And when those men had returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, about a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they had been staying. And then we take an attendance role, if you will. So notice this because it's imperative that we understand it. They went to the upper room where they were staying, that is Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. So we are, uh, we are presented here with something that if we aren't careful, if we don't slowly read and perceive this, we will miss a, a very powerful concept. As we count the names of these men, we find that there are only 11 of them when the attendance is taken. Simon Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot and Judas the son of James. Who is missing when this role is called? Who is it? It is none other than the, 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 the twelfth and uh, uh, now absent apostle, follower of Jesus, that we know of as Judas Iscariot. And he is missing here, in case you're unfamiliar with the story, he is missing here because it was his very actions that led to the death and the crucifixion of Jesus. And I want to make a presentation to you this morning about exactly what Judas's heart was. And I believe, and I'll preface it with this, I'll sum it up, and then I'm going to break it down and explain to you why I feel this way. But I believe that Judas never really intended for Jesus to be murdered on that cross, for Jesus to be martyred on that cross for Jesus to die when he betrayed him. And I look forward to explaining my, my uh, theory behind that to you in a moment. But Judas was one of the twelve. And we don't necessarily know about Judas a lot, but we hear about Judas a lot. As we look back through the account of the 12 men, the 12 apostles that followed Jesus throughout his earthly ministry, almost every single one, or maybe not necessarily every single one, but most of them, we have accounts of where they were at when Jesus called them to follow him. Remember the story of Simon Peter. He was fishing, and Jesus said, come follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. Matthew was a tax collector. He was sitting at his tax collection booth, and tax collectors back then had even a worse reputation than they would even today. 
today in America. And Jesus said, follow me. And Matthew left his uh, rather controversial career and he followed Jesus. We see repetitive story after story along those lines. But we don't know anything about how Judas began to follow Jesus. Yet he is one of the more commonly mentioned, or at least when his name is mentioned, we tune in and we listen because he is such a mysterious, mysterious uh, controversial figure in the New Testament. And he shares a name with one of the other disciples. Now get this. Can you imagine you're one of 12 men that follow Jesus, right? And then one of the guys who follows Jesus with you betrays him for 30 pieces of silver, leads to his death. Terrible, terrible, terrible situation. And guess which one it was? It's the same one that you share the first name with. So we had Judas, the son of James, and then Judas, the son of Is- Judas, whose surname was Iscariot. Now Judas Iscariot is called Iscariot because he was from the uh, Judean city of Cariol. And this is very interesting because if this is why Judas's surname was Iscariot and everything I read and study points to such, then Judas was the only one of the 12 disciples who was actually from the southern kingdom of Judah. We don't know much about his calling. We don't know much about how he got hooked up with Jesus. But we do know that he, above everyone else that followed him, had a controversial reputation. But now he was not alone in that. Simon Peter likewise had a controversial reputation. If you remember, Simon Peter is the very one who said something that he thought Jesus would like on one occasion. And Jesus turns around and looks at him eye to eye and says, Get behind me, Satan. Can you imagine if Jesus referred to you as Satan? So a controversial reputation was nothing out of the ordinary for these men. But it just seems as if Judas's reputation, albeit controversial, was rather uh, mysterious. And uh, his, his absence in Acts chapter 1 was a product of his detrimental decision to betray the Lord Jesus. But the details of that betrayal we're going to look at in a moment before we continue to track through Acts chapter 1. Because the details of Judas's decision to betray Jesus are incredibly significant. Mark accounts it for us like this in Mark chapter 14, verse 43 and 44. Jesus is at this point praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's taken some of his closest followers along with him. And while Jesus is praying, the rest of these guys have just fallen asleep. It's dark. It's nighttime. It's not time to pray. Jesus, it's time to be in bed fast asleep. But Jesus is praying because he knows exactly what is just about to happen. And this is where he prayed the famous statement if there's any way possible let this cut pass from me but nevertheless not my will be done but your will be done and then the, uh, the, the controversial events leading up to his arrest and crucifixion occur Mark chapter 14 verse 43 and 44 and immediately while Jesus was still speaking Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, came up and accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs who were from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now he who was betraying Jesus, Judas, had given them a signal saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him and lead him away under guard or lead him away safely. Our insight here to Judas's motivation for his detrimental decision is rather incredible. But let us first see the details that are surrounding 
on the surface, Judas's betrayal of the Lord Jesus. It is so imperative that we, that we, that we notice that Judas's betrayal was marked with a kiss, a sign of affection. Now, how many times do we perceive within the church that Christianity, that a person's relationship with God must be good if they can come into a worship setting like this one and they can lift their hands and they can worship Jesus and they can listen with intent to God's Word and they can show some type of affection as if they love God. Jesus. But Judas, may I present to you this morning, is such a controversial character because when I look at Judas Iscariot and when you look at Judas Iscariot, it sometimes seems as if we're briefly glancing in the mirror. Because with a sign and a signal signifying affection, signifying that he loved Jesus, he actually betrayed him. A betrayal that would lead to both of their deaths. And as if this kiss, this sign of affection wasn't enough, as if that's not powerful enough, it's really, really, really incredible that we read those last two words of Mark chapter 14, verse 44, because Jesus, Judas kisses Jesus, and then he looks at the Roman soldiers, and they knew this was Jesus. They come in to arrest Jesus, and they're going to put his hands behind his back and Mirandize him and read him his rights and all that stuff, and, and, and they're going to arrest Jesus. But Judas, he, 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 inter, he interacts with them, and he makes one more interjectory statement. He says, take him and lead him away under guard. In the original Greek, that word we translate under guard is asphalos. And it literally means to do something securely. Keep him safe. Can you imagine that in his moment of betrayal, Judas Iscariot kisses Jesus. And then he looks as the Roman soldiers come and begin to arrest him. And he says, guys, keep him These were not the words of a man who wanted his master and his teacher and his leader to die the most cruel, shameful, painful death ever known to mankind. This is contradictory to our typical understanding of Judas that he was somehow a devil from the beginning, that he was somehow a man who was just demon-possessed and never should have been walking with Jesus. I want to present to you this morning that Judas was a man who drowned in his own brokenness. Now the scripture tells us Judas's end is like this. He got his payment, his 30 pieces of silver. I'm going to tell you this, and we're going to move back into Acts chapter 1. But Judas got his payment, his 30 pieces of silver for betraying Jesus. And, and then, then he goes out, and he has no earthly idea in my interpretation of Scripture that Jesus is about to be uh, executed. He's about to be crucified on a cross. I believe that Judas really thought Jesus was the Messiah. But I believe that Judas throughout his lifetime had these certain struggles, these certain character flaws, just like you and I do. And I believe they revolved around two things. I believe it revolved around money and authority, control. He had to be in control. So he thought the Messiah's role was to overthrow the Roman government. And he said, if I can get Jesus arrested and I can get Jesus face to face with the high priest, the high priest is certainly going to see that this man is the Messiah and the high priest is going to join up with him and they're going to stop criticizing Jesus and we're going to go to Rome and 
we're going to overthrow them. But yet instead, what happened is the high priest looked at Jesus and he said, have you claimed that you're the son of God? And he said, you've said it. And then they sent him to Roman officials and Pilate said, what do you want me to do with this man? And the Jewish crowd cried aloud, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And Jesus is nailed for six hours to the most cruel, painful, shameful form of death, a Roman crucifixion. And Judas looks at himself and he says, oh no, what have I done? And he takes the money and he throws it down and he goes out of the temple and he hangs himself because he drowned in his own brokenness. There are two different accounts of Judas's death, and I could give you a really, really powerful explanation of how we believe that they coincide rather than contradict, but it would involve some verbiage and some language that is probably a bit too much for a generalized Sunday crowd. If you'd like to chat with that, find me later this week, and I'd love to talk to you about that. But Judas dies hanging, and his body falls down, and the Scripture says that, that, that his bowels gushed out after he'd hung there dead for some days. And the, the, the men who were in charge of the treasury where, G, where Judas had thrown the 30 pieces of silver back down, they took the money, and they went, and they bought this field, and they buried him there, and they named it the field of blood. But can you imagine, this is the dilemma that these apostles in Acts chapter 1 have to deal with. Yes, Jesus has said, I want you to stay at Jerusalem for just a few days and you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you're going to be my witnesses from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. And all this incredible stuff is going to happen. And then they walk away from that conversation after Jesus ascends into heaven and he disappears. And they're looking around and they're saying, oh no, we don't have enough of us. We are still marred by the decision of Judas. And I want to say to you this morning that in our lives we see life in the same manner. We are marred by the past of our own personal bad decisions. It's as if we have a giant resume sometimes that documents failure after failure after failure that we wear around our neck that just covers our entire body. And sometimes it seems as if when we encounter someone, we think in our minds, all they think about me is the vast amounts of failure that I have accomplished, for lack of better terms, in my life. We're going to see this morning how this early group of believers overcame such a resume, such a tarred reputation because of what Judas Iscariot had done. And we're going to see that this morning and how it applies not only to them, but likewise how you and I can overcome our own difficulties and our own troubled pasts just as these men and women did some 2,000 years ago. We're troubled in the same manner so many times within our lives that they were troubled. But I'm thankful for the scriptures and I'm thankful for the hope that it offers us. And I'm thankful that as we read this book of Acts, we don't merely just skim through it and see some incredible accounts and some incredible events. But we see the blueprint for how God began to form this group called the church, this revolution called Christianity, this movement that would be known as the one that turned the world upside down. How did these men overcome the negative effects, the negative ramifications of Judas's detrimental decision? We look at Acts chapter 1 verse 14. We see the first of three principles that I'm going to present to you this morning that they use to overcome their resume of failure and that you and I can use to overcome our resume of failure. Acts chapter 1 verse 14 says, These men 
were all with one mind. They were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, with his brothers. And it's noteworthy that this is the last time we encounter Mary, the mother of Jesus, being mentioned in Scripture. So they're all gathered together. And the Scripture says in verse 14 that they're continually devoted. That is one word in the Greek, and it's the Greek word proskatureo. And proskatureo means to adhere. Okay, this is incredible. Because let's backtrack in our minds momentarily. And let's think about the reputation that these guys had when they were following Jesus for three years in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Did they have a reputation for adhering and listening to everything Jesus said? No. Did they have a reputation for hearing and listening to most of what Jesus said? No. Most of the time, Jesus would say something and they would totally, totally misinterpret it and not properly perceive it, but yet he had continually allowed them to follow him. And what a powerful statement of his character. Amen. But anyway... These are the same men who Jesus is out here trying to teach the gospel, preach the good news of the gospel. And they're over here arguing about who's going to sit at his right hand when his kingdom comes and who's going to sit at his left hand. These are the very ones like Simon Peter who said, what do you mean you're going to die? I'm not going to let anybody take you. And Jesus turns around, looks at Simon Peter and says, get behind me, Satan, for you don't savor the things of the kingdom of God. These were men who, when Jesus was being crucified, the majority of them fled the other direction, some denying they even knew who he was. But yet, Acts 1.14 describes them with the Greek word proskatureo. They adhered to what Jesus was saying. This had not been their reputation. This had not been what they were known for. And perhaps you're here this morning and you say, Pastor, my spiritual resume does not say that I have been known for listening to what God said. Can I tell you, it's never too early to begin. It's never too early to start the first step of that incredible lifelong journey. And they said, we, if we are going to stand any chance at all, of fulfilling what Jesus would have us to do in His absence, in His earthly absence, then we must cling to what He has told them, despite our individual histories of disobedience. Maybe you're here this morning, you say, Pastor, I've done wrong and wrong and wrong in my life, and I've even experienced Jesus before, but I still just repetitionally, it's like the old song that says, I'm prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. I'm prone to leave the God I love. But Jesus still bids that we come to Him and find rest. And if we confess our sins, He's faithful and He's just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is no amount of negative past history on your resume that Jesus looks at and says, You know what? I don't want to fool with you. But He still says, Come to me. And I encourage you this morning, find the same persistent fixation that those early believers had. And continually. Devote yourself. Proskatureo, continually devote yourself to what he has told you. The second thing we see is in chapter, 15, chapter 1, verses 15 through 26. And for time's sake, I'm going to paraphrase this. Basically what happens is they're meeting in this group. 
There's about 120 of them at this time. They're in the upper room. I believe this is the same place where they ate the last Passover with Jesus. And they're in the upper room and they begin to look around and they say, we have a gap. Did y'all notice how I smiled when I said that? We have a gap. Okay, they had a gap, not in their teeth like me, but they had a gap in their ministry structure. Some of you all will understand that by the time I say amen at the end of this lesson. They had a gap in their ministry structure, and they said, we've got to fill this gap. We've got to cover this, but how are we going to do that? And Simon Peter, this is where we begin to see the brand new post-resurrection Simon Peter. Not the same guy, not the same individual who was just ridden with disobedience in the Gospels. Simon Peter stands up and he begins to declare how that Judas fell from his office and how that somebody else should take his position. And they call out the name of two men. In verse 23, they call out Joseph, who was also called Barsabbas, and he was also called Justice. So he was the guy with three names. And then they also call out a man by the name of Matthias. And they cast lots for these two men. Matthias draws the lot. Matthias becomes the replacement of Judas. But what is incredible about this entire ordeal is the small time frame in which it occurred. Between Acts chapter 1 and verse 11, when Jesus has ascended to heaven, to Acts chapter 2 verse 1, there are literally ten days. So these men did not walk around for months and months and years and weeks and days thinking, you know what, we've got to find somebody to fill Judas's shoes. Within less than 10 days, they had already had this taken care of. They practiced efficiency in their spiritual lives. And it's incredible. They saw the sense of urgency for their own walk with Christ. They saw the sense of urgency for the very purpose, even though they did not understand the purpose of God for their lives yet. They saw the sense of urgency, and they wasted no time whatsoever. Thirdly, back in Acts chapter 1 and verse 14, the Scripture tells us before it tells us that they were continually devoted, that Greek word prosecutoreo, Before it tells us they were completely devoted or continually devoted, it tells us another factor about their communal thought process. Acts chapter 1 verse 14 tells us that they were all with one mind, continually devoted. The term, the phrase one mind, two words in the English language. It's one word in the Greek and we're going to see it repetitiously as we study the book of Acts. It's the Greek word hamathumedon. And hamathumedon literally means to rush along in unison. And it's one of the most incredible Greek words as we study the New Testament. Hamathumedon actually kind of gives the ideology of a large band or a large ensemble who plays a really fast song, but they're in perfect time throughout it. This is the word that is used to describe these men and women. They were synergistically united. They were on the same page. 
Bartholomew wasn't over here saying, you know what, I don't like Barsabbas and I don't like this about Matthias and I think we ought to look somewhere else. And John wasn't saying, well, I like Matthias, but I don't like Barsabbas and Barsabbas has got three names and how are we going to know what to call him? And then Simon Peter wasn't over here saying, well, we need to do this and if you all don't do this, I'm not your friends anymore. And then Andrew wasn't saying, if you all don't do what I want you to do, I'm going to church somewhere else. And all those are things that we tend to hear in American churches today. Am I right? But that is not synergistic unity. That is not purposed synergy. And while we can all have differences of opinion from differences of opinion from everything from politics to the selected color of carpet in our church buildings, we can all have differences of opinion. But we must realize the main thing is the main thing. And you may like hair, and I may not like hair. But still, yet what unites us in our relationship with God through the shed blood of Jesus is greater than anything that could ever divide us. And that. Is where we discover a purposed synergy. Maybe you're here this morning, you say, Pastor, I don't fit in church. And I don't fit in this church. I, I, don't, I don't know all these things about the Bible. And, and I, I'm not really comfortable with, with, with being in church because I'm not really necessarily always been a Christian person or I've always done, I'm not always done right. Guess what? You're in a group of people who are in the same boat as you this morning. But we've found a purposed synergy. We realize that we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God as Romans chapter 3 verse 23 declares to us. We realize that, but we also realize Romans 6 23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. We have discovered a purposed synergy that brings us together. The beginning of this revolution was when the body of Christ discovered that purposed synergy. Maybe you say, Pastor, how does this fit in my redemption of my resume of failures? Well, let's go back to what we're actually talking about here today. And let's talk about how that these men overcame that negative reputation because of Judas's decision and how we can do the same because of our own personal decisions. How does this fit? The old adage is that no man is an island. That no one makes it on their own. Hebrews chapter 10 at verse 25 says, Let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, but rather let us encourage one another. Can I tell you what church is? Under God's divine blueprint for the church, church is not a place where we merely just dress up and come and try to look nice and smile and appear as if we're happy and all is well in life. As I mentioned last Sunday, church is not a museum for the most pristine of saints, but rather church is a hospital for the most broken of sinners. It is in this that we find our recovery. These men and women would have never recovered from Judas's decision. They would have never fulfilled the purpose that Jesus had for them had they not came together under a purposed synergy. I need the church. You need the church. We need one another. 
And it's in our recognition. And let me say this, and I don't intend to offend anyone, but pandemic or no pandemic, real or fake, accurate or overblown, we still need the church. And it blows my mind that we're studying the book of Acts where almost every single leading character dies for the sake of the gospel and now there's a chance that you might catch a virus, that there's a chance that it might kill you. And those who have sold themselves to the gospel have suddenly disappeared. And that's a struggle. We need one another. Online viewing is great, but it's not the same. Parking lots are great, but they're not the same. We must, in this very hour, I was talking with a very seasoned and wise pastor on the stage with us for our Community Unite 2020 Forum Friday night. And I said, Pastor, I said, you have been doing this longer than anybody on this stage. Do you think this opportunity that we're on, that this threshold we're on, could be the greatest opportunity for the church in our lifetime? And he says, if we come together, yes. So I'm done with whether or not you like wearing masks or agree with wearing masks or if you're like me and you never realized your breath was really that bad until you had to walk through Walmart with that thing on. Some of you, some of you know what I'm talking about, don't you? Stock just went up in peppermints and wintergreens. It doesn't matter if you're voting for one guy or another guy. And let's not take that any further. And I'm not going to give you my opinion and what I think, not in today's lesson anyway. And whatever your past is and whatever your experience is and whatever your preference for church is and all those other things. But if we could just convene on this powerful concept that Jesus died so that the entire world might be reunited with the Creator who made them in His very image and likeness, then look out world, there is more hope here than you ever imagined existed in this life. But we must come together. We must unite under a purposed synergy. We quote, we quote Romans 8.28 in relation to our own personal lives. But we're missing it. We're missing it with this place that we're in in life right now. That we know God works all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to his purpose. So I realize this, and I've got to quit preaching because I feel like this morning I could just go on and on and on, but I've got to stop this, okay? I'm starting to get hungry too. So we must realize, and I'm going to close with this statement, that yes, the world has lost its ever-loving mind that we live in right now. Things are crazier now than probably any of us have seen in our lifetime. And it's like I'm going to wake up tomorrow and wonder what other crazy stuff is going to happen that I could have never imagined would have happened in my lifetime. And the level of craziness is like way up there. But here's my realization. And here's what we must come together under. It's the fact that the goodness of God and God's ability to work all this craziness together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose, no matter how high that crazy meter has gotten, the meter that measures God's goodness is even higher. And He is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above everything, we ask or think in our minds. So my message to you is this. Let's come together. 
Maybe you're here this morning and you say, Pastor, my life has been just like what you presented here. It's been a resume of failure after failure after failure. Let me speak to you personally and tell you this morning that there's hope in Jesus. There's hope for a brighter future for you. And likewise for the church as a whole and likewise for the society that we live in today that seems to have gone mad, there's hope in Jesus. No matter what your need this morning, He is the solution. Would you stand with me as we pray together today? Father, we are so thankful.